Well, good morning. We uh, sit here on the beginning of a brand new month, the month of August, and uh, the, the bad news for some of you is it's just a few weeks till school starts. Uh, when I think of the beginning of school, I think of finals week. Uh, there are a lot of us who can recall those final exams at the end of each semester, at the end of the year, be it high school or college, grad school. We all face these intense times where we are tasked with demonstrating that we've been able to absorb and grasp and uh, understand the material taught to us over the semester. Or, in other words, many of us just figure out how much we can memorize and retain in a 12 to 24 hour period, and then we repeat that process over and over for a week. My first year in college was my very first exposure to any sort of final in my life. You see, you need to understand something. The, the high school I attended was a very, very different high school. It was experimental in a lot of ways. In fact, it was so experimental, they've torn it down and built a new high school on that site. And I only went to high school back in the 70s. If you were to look at my high school from the air, uh, overhead, it would look like some sort of spaceship had landed. There were three circular pods, like a three-leaf clover, with a, a long uh, area extending out, like the giant stem of the clover. Built in the 70s, it was built on a model of independent learning and study highlighted by open classrooms. That's right, there were absolutely no walls in the three pods in our high school. Classrooms were divided by partitions. You could actually, if the lecture on your side was boring, you could listen to the teacher on the other side. Uh, people would walk by and people could wave to them from the classroom. Learning was to be student-led and student-motivated because teacher-led classrooms stifled the students and the creativity. We were supposed to complete learning packets, but we were not subjected to standardized testing or finals. If I were to paraphrase my high school career, there would be a line from a song that came out right at the beginning of my freshman year by Paul Simon, and I'll paraphrase his words. When I think back on all the junk I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. Now imagine my sheer terror when I had to take my first comprehensive final in college. I got through that first semester and those first finals, and, 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 I, and I made it, and I realized I did know how to study and cram, as it were. The, the next semester, hanging out with my group of friends, one of my friends announced, to my great shock, all of us at the table actually were kind of shocked, when she said that this year she was trying an experiment, she was not going to cram or study for her finals. Her logic was simply this. I've been sitting in lectures, taking notes and reviewing notes all semester long. I've been reading material. I've been writing papers. I've been taking tests and quizzes all semester long. So as a result of all of that input, I should already uh, know what I need to know. And she did it. She didn't cram for her finals and she passed every one. I never had that courage. We're in Luke chapter 22. 
we're in the, the middle section of a very lengthy uh, chapter. And, and in this section that we're in, uh, we're going to look at the final exam for the followers of Jesus. Now, we're going to cover a lot of verses. If you look at the chapter and you say, wow, we're going to go from verse 35 to 62. That's a total of what, 27 verses, and, and we're going to get through that in a little over a half hour. Don't worry. Luke writes a lot of his book in narrative form, like a story. And so sometimes in that storytelling format, you take a lot of time to tell the story, but there's some details that are there that really come out. And so we're not going to go through every verse, but we're going to pull out some details. In fact, today I want to draw out five reminders from the passage here in Luke that are going to help us as we go through some times that could be stressful. Now, just let me remind you again of that night. This was that last night, the night of, of the Passover. Um, Jesus and the disciples had already worked their way through the Passover meal as it was done during those days. They had remembered God's deliverance of the nation, of, uh, of the nation uh, Israel from slavery to Egypt. They had discussed and debated among themselves who would take Jesus' place. And remember, I think it was a couple weeks ago we looked at and said it could have very possibly been in the middle of that debate that the scene that John tells us where Jesus gets up and washes the feet may have happened there because the lesson he wanted them to have in their minds was a lesson of servant leadership. The plot to betray him had been revealed to John. Jesus spent time talking about the place where he was going, that he would come again, that he wouldn't leave them as orphans, but he was going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell them and empower them and instruct them. He warned them that the road ahead would be full of difficulties and opposition. Matthew tells us that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Most likely this hymn was from uh, the Psalms, probably a, a section of the Psalm called the Hallel, starting in Psalm 113 and ending in Psalm 118. And it's very interesting when you read those sections in Psalms, those, those chapters, you discover that the last line of Psalm 118, 28 is, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Those are the words ringing into their ears as they go out into the night. Luke doesn't tell us about that hymn. Other gospel writers do. What Luke leaves us with is a cryptic and often misunderstood statement from Jesus. Remember, it's final exam time. Jesus wants his followers to be fully prepared for what's coming. So in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 35, he says this. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to pursue, uh, when I sent you out without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. 
God's plan, Jesus begins by recalling a time that was a highlight in the three years that they had spent with him. A, a highlight because at the peak of his ministry, at the peak of his popularity, he sent them out. And, and, and he reminds them, I sent you out. I, didn't, I sent you out without a purse, uh, without bags, without uh, uh, sandals. I sent you out just empty-handed. Did you lack anything? They said, no. We had everything we needed. And he, he reminds them of that because he wants them to recall how all their needs were met. But now he tells them everything is going to be different. The entire ministry that you're going to have is going to be different. You're going to face all sorts of opposition, and you need to be prepared for it. Now there's a phrase in here, it's in verse 36, where he says at the very end, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And if we take that phrase in isolation, and don't look at it in the rest of this chapter, as well as other places in Scripture, we could easily conclude Jesus was telling them to arm themselves and use human means to defend themselves. But as we'll see in a minute, that's not consistent with the rest of the account. Jesus is warning them about opposition because of the quote he gives from Isaiah 53:12. He was numbered among the transgressors. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to be considered a criminal. And those who are closest to me are going to be guilty by association. The good news is, though, this is all happening to fulfill God's plan. You see, God's plan from the earliest passages of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God's plan was to redeem humanity from the grip of sin and evil brought about by our enemy, the devil. In fact, we'll see in a couple of weeks that Jesus showed two of his followers how from Moses and the prophets, all the scriptures pointed to him. But he wants them to know, you're in for a challenge. When I look at these verses and I look at them in the full context, I can see what he's saying. Earlier on, he had talked to them about serving one another. Earlier on, just a few verses earlier, uh, later than that, he talked about a warning. You're going to be sifted as wheat. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. I've prayed that your faith may not fail. And it all begins to come together. The followers of Jesus are not going to have available to them the conventional means of moving forward because they are not going into any conventional conflict. They're, they're, they need to move forward with a community. They need to move forward with an awareness of the greater mission of God. That is why Jesus is a little miffed when they're excited that they have two swords. That's enough. Is not as saying as, uh, that's sufficient. You'll, you'll do great with those. Were, these guys were not like ninja disciples. They stood no chance against the mob that was coming. He stops the conversation. Because to carry it on, we'll further miss the point. They will have to learn the hard way. They will discover in a few hours that Jesus is not telling them to arm up physically. He was telling them to get ready spiritually. Now here's the first point that we want to draw out, and it's simply this. Anyone who follows Jesus is engaged in spiritual conflict. 
Last week when Justin preached, he said it quite well. He said our enemy hates those of us who follow Jesus. The, the conflict we face will be different for each of us, but the goal of the enemy is the same, to get our faith to fail. Sometimes that conflict is real, and it's raw, and it's in our face. Sometimes that conflict is subtle and hardly noticeable, but it doesn't go away. No one who has put their faith in Jesus Christ is immune from spiritual conflict. Let me, let me give you an illustration. This is not to garner sympathy. It's just a fact of life. I face conflict every single Sunday that I step up to preach. It comes in a variety of forms. It may be lots of distraction prior to preaching. Sound system's not working or something's not plugged in right or... Uh, something, you know, we have a drip somewhere in the building. You could go on and on. There's distractions. It may be a mental conflict. It may be that I just feel foggy. I don't think I can concentrate. Uh, maybe I sometimes I feel like I'm not making sense. I've, I've actually asked Charlene at times, did, did I even make any sense this morning? And yet, I have to depend on the Holy Spirit. Here, are things to overcome, and I can't always overcome them on my own. I have to depend on the Holy Spirit weekly. And by God's grace, He works in me and through me despite the conflicts. And we all have conflicts. We all have spiritual struggles. So how do we get through it? How do we get through How do we engage those conflicts? Well, let's be, go on to verse 39. I want you to listen to a couple verses, and there's a detail here that if we're not careful, we'll miss. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Did you see it? Did you hear it? It's very brief. We can sometimes just move over it because we want to get to the red letters. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Apparently in his research, Dr. Luke discovered that going out to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane was a practice of Jesus while he was in Jerusalem. We know from Mark's gospel in Mark 1.35 that Jesus would often go out early in the morning while it was still dark to solitary places to pray. You see, Jesus, we would call it today a spiritual discipline. Jesus had built into his life this discipline of spending time with the Father in prayer, of communicating with God. So, on the most stressful night, of his earthly life, Jesus did not depart from his usual practice. And he was challenging his followers to pray that they would not fall into temptation. In fact, he begins and ends that time, and as recorded here in Luke, with that reminder. But what was the temptation for them? 
What was the temptation that, from, that he was warning them of? When we look at what's transpired, it's clear that they were facing that biggest test of their commitment to Jesus. Mark would say that the, what, came, what was uttered by the prophet came true, that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. They were going to be, they were to be joining Jesus in prayer, not napping, but joining him in prayer, asking God the same prayer request that Jesus had prayed at them, of them, that their faith would not fail, that they would stay strong. They were going to be sifted as wheat, as we've seen. They were going to be pushed to the limits. And the best weapon they had, and the best weapon we have against spiritual temptation, against spiritual conflict, is not a sword, but it's prayer. Here's our second reality for today. Prayer. Communication with God is vital in dealing with spiritual conflict. We each need to be in constant communication with God. And Jesus models it. Luke doesn't give us all the details as Matthew and Mark do. John gives us a much longer prayer that may or may not have been prayed at this time. But we know that Jesus prayed, and, and let me put kind of my translating spin on it. The, the essence of Jesus' prayer was this. If there's another way to get this done, I am open to it. But I will obediently do your will no matter what comes. Luke tells us that this time was so intense that an angel from heaven was dispatched to minister to Jesus. Luke, as a medical doctor, was drawn to a fact that several noted that, that his research showed that Jesus experienced this condition. We now call it hemodetrosis. It's the level of stress was so high, the, the stress in his body physically was so great that Jesus began through his pores to sweat drops of blood. Don't ever see Jesus as stoically praying by a rock, with a little bit of light from heaven coming down, that was not what this prayer was like. He was agonizing. Matthew and Mark say he fell to the ground. Jesus agonized, not just because of the physical pain that was about to come his way in the physical trial, but as the God-man, he was keenly aware of the depth of spiritual suffering that was coming to his way, and he cried out to God, is there another way? And I want you to keep something in mind here. This is the third thing that we want to highlight this morning. God the Father answered Jesus' prayer. And he answered no. No, there's not another way. No, this cup will not pass from you. No, I'm not willing to take this away. I want you to realize this morning, sometimes God's best answer to our prayer is no. The Father said no. And all humani humanity was the beneficiary. 
We already know the story. Jesus went on. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again the third day. God's no to Jesus was his yes to you. God said no to Jesus so he could say, yes, I love you with an everlasting love. God said no to Jesus so he could say, yes, I am willing to sacrifice my only son for your sin. God said no to Jesus so he could say, yes, your sins are forgiven. God said no to Jesus so he could say, yes, you only have to put your faith in Jesus to gain access to my family. The Father's no to Jesus was his yes to you. I hear people talking all the time about how, oh, I've been blessed in this way and that way. And I'm glad for that. But we need to remember that God's answers aren't always yes. And in fact, if God's answers to your prayer are always yes, then you're either not listening or you've just decided to try to do your best to make life work on your terms and you're kind of giving God an attaboy and a pat on the back because God doesn't always say yes. Can you recall a time where God said no to you? In a sense, Charlene and I are, are here today and have been here for all these years because God said no. He said no several times. I'll share just one with you. By the time I finished seminary, I had two master's degrees. Charlene and I had been working with the young people of our church for several years. And in fact, the last two years, we were running the program. We decided, though, that as we started thinking about what's next, where are we going after seminary, what might God have for us, we realized that there were hundreds and hundreds of positions in the United States for pastors that had hundreds, uh, lots of people there. I think the statistics at the time were like, for every opening in a, a church for a pastor, there were upwards to 90 applicants. I, I, I can't back that up with other words of what I just heard over the time, but I knew it was a lot. So we thought maybe God is calling us, and we've always had a heart for working in other places. Maybe God's calling us overseas, and, and it just sensed that, that that's what we ought to be thinking about. So we sent a letter to a, a well-known mission organization. It was an organization that we knew of because some of our own missionaries in the church we attended and were members of were part of that mission. And we were a little bit specific because we knew we wanted to be involved in an MK school. And, and we knew the school. And we knew they had needs. I mean, you can get the newsletters from your friends and like, we need help. We need to fill these positions. And, and also we knew that there were needs. So we wrote a letter. Again, Charlene had a degree in Christian education, three years of, of teaching elementary school. I had a, a, an MDiv and an MA in biblical counseling and already have, had already taught on the college level at the time. We had experience. We felt we were ready. We received the reply from the person we contacted. We had written and said, how do we start the application process? Here's who we are. I opened the envelope, a little nervous. And the reply to this day kind of leaves us dumbfounded. Uh, basically, they said no. The individual said we didn't have enough experience at this point, that we should stay in youth ministry, get more experience. 
to say we were a bit devastated is a bit of an understatement. We, we were blown away. We just didn't know what to do. I've actually talked to other mission executives and told them this story, and they look at me like, really? Why didn't you write us? You know, it's that, that was the feeling we got, and yet we, we just knew somehow this was God's no. Not too long after that, kind of rubbing salt in the wound in our heart, we were participating in a commissioning service of another one of our classmates who was going to the mission field. And uh, the way it worked in our church, I would be up on the platform with the other pastors. Charlene was down in the, in the congregation, so we didn't have a chance to really talk about it until we were on our way home. We drove home that night, and we're thinking about the service that we've been in, and we're thinking about the joy of our friends going out to serve the Lord. And, you know, I, I forget who said it first, but one of us said, I think God spoke to me tonight. And the other went, yeah, I did too. What do you say? You go first. <laughs> and so we began to compare notes, and, it, and, and both of us came away with the same deep sense. God said, this is the role I have for you. I want you to be active in training and building and sending others out. About that time, a book came out by a man by the name of Neil Parolo. It was entitled, Serving as Senders. And Parolo used this illustration from the military. He said, for every soldier on the front lines, there are nine support personnel in the background. And he said, we ought to have that kind of an idea for missions. We need people overseas. We need people you know, serving Christ cross-culturally. We got to have that. But for every cross-cultural servant, we need nine people back home supporting them financially, spiritually, logistically. And that landed with us, and we said, okay, God, if this is the vision you have for us, we'll pour ourselves into that. And it has been amazing what God's allowed us to do. Over the years, we've stored belongings of missionaries in our garage, in our basement, wherever we could stick them, you know, because, and, and for one family, I know we, we shipped them a little bit at a time till they got everything. Uh, we... We once developed a cow collection for a friend of ours on the mission field and would send her a cow for every month just to add some humor and fun to her life. We've worked to be a safe place and safe people so that when a missionary came home and they just had some struggles, they could be safe with us and they know that they could share their heart with us and we wouldn't, we wouldn't judge them for it. We would just be listeners. We've had missionaries stay in our home, sometimes for lengthy periods of time. After moving here to Wheaton, we lost track of how many runs we've made to O'Hare Airport to either drop off or pick up a missionary. And we look back on it, and we think, had that person said yes, we could have gone somewhere and served another country and I'm sure God would have used it, I have no doubt. But when God used him to be the no, we've been able to do far more and hopefully encourage others far more than we ever could. We've been able to do a far greater work than we've ever done. And God's no ultimately mean yes to being here. Remember, sometimes God's best answer to our prayer is no. But know this, 
When God says no, he always has something different in mind. So Jesus is there. God has said no. He's challenging his disciples to not fall into a temptation. And Luke says in verse 47, while he's still speaking, a crowd comes up. And Judas is with them. You remember Judas? He's one of the disciples. Judas is with them. And he approaches Jesus to kiss him. In that day and age, when two friends met, even two male friends, a kiss was considered appropriate. It was a kiss of friendship. It was a show of affection. We do the man hug and three pats on the back. But they did a hug and a kiss. And we know here and in the other Gospels, Peter saw this as his time to step up. Luke just says one of the disciples. Matthew and Mark make it clear it was Peter. Since Mark really was a close associate with Peter, Peter took the blame. And he pulls out that sword. Remember those two swords in the room? Pulls that baby out. He is ready. And he takes a swipe with that sword. And he is aiming it at one of the servants of the high priest. He is aiming to lop that guy's head off. And like the fisherman he is, he's not a swordsman. He misses. And all he gets is his ear. And Jesus rebukes him. No more of this. You see, Jesus was never talking about real swords. In fact, Matthew makes the rebuke even stronger in Matthew 26, 52 to 54. He says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my heavenly Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And Luke tells us something else. Jesus reached out. And he, maybe he reached out and picked that ear off the ground. Blew it off, kind of rubbed it around, and he put it back on. And he healed the servant. And John's gospel tells us that when they came asking for Jesus, and Jesus said, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. John says, the power of that statement, that I am, the name for, uh, what, through which God identified himself to Moses, tell them, I am sent me. When Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, that name of deity, that name of power, of eternity, they fell back. So just imagine watching him heal this man out of compassion in the middle of his arrest, being blown away literally by his statement, I am. Imagine the level of hatred and viciousness that drove them to still arrest him. Down the road, they're going to trade the life of a murderer for one who healed somebody in the middle of his arrest. Jesus questions them. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is your hour when darkness reigns. The word reigns could be translated when darkness has authority 
or when darkness has been granted permission. This is your hour. This is your short period of time. This is your time. It would last about 72 hours, maybe a little more, when darkness seemed to have the authority, when darkness seemed to be on the throne. For a few days, darkness is going to be granted permission to be in charge. This is your hour. This is your moment. It won't last forever. It's temporary, but it's here. And this is why you've come. And I look at that and I think of a fourth lesson for me today. Satan's power is bound by God's authority. Oh, yes, you will. You are facing conflicts and struggles. Oh, yes, over the centuries and, and moving on into the future, people have and will die as martyrs because of Satan's work because of his influence, because of his power. But never forget, Satan is a defeated enemy. He was defeated at the cross, and his power is limited to the boundaries in which God gives it. It seems that he has authority, but his authority is just for a time. The reign of our enemy began in Genesis 3, and it's been going for centuries, but compared to eternity past, present, and future, it's very short. This does not mean Satan's power is not real. It does not mean we should take it for granted. But it does mean that we can truly take comfort in the words of John in 1 John 4, 4. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Oh, friends, respect the power of Satan, but don't be afraid of it. When you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you and you are able to withstand the onslaught of Satan. Jesus is seized. That word there just speaks of violence. It's not like, okay, come on, go this way. It's like they grabbed him, they seized him, they're dragging him off. They take him to the high priest's house. Mark says all the disciples ran. Some of them circled back. Peter was one. Kind of circled back, mingled in with the crowd. Gets into the high priest's house. Gets into the courtyard there. In, in Palestine at night, it may be hot during the day, but the nights get really cold. Somebody starts a fire in the fire pit there in the courtyard. Peter blends in with the crowd watching then it happens. Luke says it was a servant girl. She kind of looks at him, sees him sitting there. She looks at him again closely. Can you just imagine kind of getting in his face? Hey, wait a minute. This man was with them. Peter denies it. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. Him? I don't know him. That causes people to start looking. Someone else looks at him and says, hey, wait, you're also one of them. I mean, you know, the guy that lops off the priest's ear in the middle of the garden is not a guy that was blending into the shadows. He was kind of out there. People saw him. Peter gets a little more angry. I am not, Peter replied. But people now have heard him speak. Luke says it's about an hour later. Someone, maybe Peter's kind of having a conversation with somebody on the side and 
Someone comes up, Matthew and Mark say they heard his accent, and they say, you've got to be one with him because you're a Galilean. You're from the same area. And Peter goes off. Matthew and Mark says he began to call down curses and to swear. And Peter yells at them, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter, in this rage of anger that's fueled by his fear that he's going to be found out, tries to back them off with yelling and cursing. And at that moment, Luke says, the rooster crows. Luke gives us a detail that nobody else does. The Lord turned, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. The rooster crows. Jesus turns. Peter looks up. They make eye contact. Peter remembers that Jesus had said, before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times I've thought a lot about that look what what was the look see in in my heart I don't think it was a look of anger I don't think it was a see told you so I don't think it was that look In, in, in my heart of hearts I think it was a look that was mixed with compassion and concern a look of pain Peter in that moment had failed just as Jesus told him he would fail and his failure had been brought to light. And Jesus is hurting for his friend and loving his friend and knowing he's going to be dying for his friend. And Peter is crushed and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Jesus had already told his disciples that he would raise again a day but he knew from that moment until he saw peter three days later that peter is now going to be living an internal nightmare and jesus is hurting for him because peter is broken more than he's ever felt broken now there's one sense in which i'm kind of speculating about the look and yet there's another sense which i think i have some foundation remember jesus had told peter in that same moment I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. In his great prayer in John 17, in verse 15, Jesus prays to the Father specifically about the disciples that you will protect them from the evil one. And Jesus knows that the evil one's hour is now that he's reigning for a short time and he's concerned for Peter. See, the evil one would tell Peter that he was a failure. The evil one would tell Peter that he would never amount to anything. The evil one would tell Peter that he should have stayed in that fishing boat, that the last three years have been a waste. And Jesus knew that he's concerned for Peter. But we serve a God of compassion. We serve a God who takes no delight in our failures. In fact, this is a God who writes through the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 33, 11, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. If God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but desires that they repent, that they turn around, then he does not take delight in our failure. And Jesus did not take delight in the failure of Peter. 
Jesus wants us to succeed spiritually. Here's our final point for today. When we fail, Jesus hurts for us and longs to restore us. That's what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness doesn't mean you're absolved of the consequences. Our failures do come with consequences that we may have to own up to. But it does mean that God's forgiveness extends to our failures and His forgiveness is complete. I don't know where I first came up with this, uh, but it's something that was impressed upon me, especially as I would go through those struggles as I've told you about. I would get done preaching, I would go walking off, and about here I hear, you're such an idiot. Why would anybody listen to you? You didn't make any sense today. I don't even know why you do what you do. Nobody cares about what you have to say. And I've realized that's not God. You see, Satan condemns. But God doesn't condemn. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 5.1 tells us. Satan condemns, God corrects. Jesus was not condemning Peter that night. He did not give him a condemning look. He gave him a compassionate look. Because later on, Jesus would reach out to Peter specifically and call him back into ministry. And in the next few weeks, when we move from Luke's volume 1 to Luke's volume 2, we'll see Peter stepping up in a different way, in leadership and compassion and love. When we fail, Jesus hurts for us and longs to restore us. Jesus loved Peter when he looked at him. Next week, we're going to look at the actual death of Jesus. And as we anticipate that time, take these five realities with you. Anyone who follows Jesus is engaged in spiritual conflict. Prayer. Communication with God is vital in dealing with spiritual conflict. Sometimes God's best answer to our prayer is no. Satan's power is bound by God's authority. And when we fail, Jesus hurts for us and longs to restore us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for lessons that we can learn as we go through these accounts that are so familiar to many of us. Help us, Lord, to absorb these lessons because we'll all face final exam time. We'll all face struggles. And we need to know that you are there. And we need to know that we can reach out to you. And we need to know that when we drop the ball, when we fail, you reach out to us and restore us and forgive us. Remind us that you, Holy Spirit who indwells us, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. May we live this week in victory. In Jesus' name, amen.